There was a Chinese evangelist, you may have heard of him, by the, and, and teacher, his name was Watchman Nee. And he wrote a book about Ephesians, and the, the book is called Sit, Walk, Stand. Sit, Walk, Stand. It's an outline of the book. Get it? He said, first of all, we're seated with Christ. In this first three chapters, you have uh, a litany, if you will, of our riches in Christ, our, our, our wealth in Christ. Uh, and then we have in chapter 4 and 5, we have the believers walk, and repeatedly it says that. And so watch when he said, sit and walk. And then in chapter 6, what do you have? The complete armor, the believers warfare. Uh, and, and, and so that's the stand. You stand against the wiles of the devil. That was his outline. Sit, walk, stand. Another way that you could outline Ephesians uh, would be uh, the first three chapters are our wealth in Christ, our inheritance and our glorious spiritual riches, what you have because you're a Christian, all the stuff that's automatically given to you, even if you didn't feel it the moment you became a follower of Jesus Christ, chapters one through three, like our, our wealth. And then again, again, chapter four that we're in now and chapter five is what, what does it look like then for a person who has all that spiritual wealth? What does his walk look like? Your wealth, your walk. And chapter six, again, it's going to talk about fighting against the devil and demons, your warfare, your warfare. So let's not, let's not rush too fast into this walk thing. Let's remind ourselves of what Pastor Stephen was teaching us uh, last week. He got the first chunk about our walk, and, and he got to teach you last week. By the way, I heard you heard some good singing last week, too. What do you think about that? That was some, little Kara. She looking forward to having her sing. And then, and then Pastor uh, Lounsborough teaching in chapter 4 was the first chunk of Ephesians that's talking very practically about what does it look like? What does our new life, what does new life in Christ look like once you now have become a Christian and you have all this spiritual wealth that's just been given to you? How should we live then? What should it look like? And the first chunk there in chapter 4 he was talking about our, our unity in the body, our oneness, our, our agreement, how it work, the dynamic of this thing works when we best, when we work together, right? But we don't want to rush into that too fast. Let's talk just for a minute more about our wealth. Fred Craddock, I was reading Fred Craddock one night this week, and I have a little quote here I'd like you to see. Fred Craddock was an old Southern preacher, and one of my favorites, he was a storytelling preacher. Here's what he wrote, and it reminded me of Ephesians. He says, Pastor... I know I need to be scolded. I know I need to be corrected. I know I need to be instructed. I know I need to be exhorted. I know I need to be called to repentance. But then he said, but I also need for you, pastor, to take me by the hand and let me walk off the sides of my inheritance as a child of God. I need every now and then to run my fingers through the unsearchable riches of the treasury of God's grace. And then I need to sing the doxology and go home. Isn't that a great quote? Hey, pastor. Pastor, I know that I've done wrong stuff, and you're going to tell me not to do that anymore. Hey, pastor, I know that I'm supposed to do good stuff, and you're going to tell me to do the good stuff I'm not doing. I know that. Pastor, I know I'm supposed to repent, and every good pastor will call people to repentance from time to time. But hey, pastor, sometimes when I come to church, can you just remind me of what I own because I'm in Christ. Can we just like walk the property lines and see the vast riches that already belong to us because we're Christians? Paul never exhorted people, 
called them to repentance before he reminded them of the wherewithal that God gave them. It's like, yes, you can live this way because this is who you are. And that's what he was doing in chapters 1 through 3. Let's not ever forget that. And today I want to talk to you about how you can move into a life that really is different from the life that you used to have. I was working with a young couple. They wouldn't mind me telling you this story. Many years ago, Phil and Kara... They were led to the Lord, and they went to a little revival service in a church uh, where Tommy Oaks was preaching, an old southern storytelling preacher, and they got saved. And then they came to our church, and they started to grow, and they were kind of up and down like it is. When you first get started, some people just take off, and they're charted up and to the right. Everything goes good. Most of us, not so much, right? Most of us, we kind of grow, and we got to have little setbacks, and that's the way it was with them. As a matter of fact, you know, they would be there in church, and then they'd be there in church, then they'd be there in church, then they'd not be there, and then I'd go call on them, and then they'd come back, and it was like that a lot, and after a while, I said, Phil, you know, you and I ought to get together, and I would begin to disciple him. I would begin to meet with him one-on-one and kind of help him to grow. It was the five, the only time we found that we could meet was five o'clock every Thursday morning, and so Phil and I would meet five o'clock every Thursday morning for a long time. One time while we were meeting, I said to him, so tell me about your devotional life. You know, have you been in the Word? Have you been praying? And he goes, I get up too late, and I have to leave for work early, and so I haven't been getting in the Word. I was young and foolish at the time, so I said, hey, why don't I call you when I get up? I used to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning. I said, why don't I call you when I get up? And then you can get in the Word. I'll get in the Word. I call him every morning. Then I lost 5 o'clock in the morning for one year. I was an idiot. But anyway, I did 5 o'clock in the morning for a young. And Phil and Care would have setbacks every once in a while. I remember one time he came in for his meeting, and we're talking. I said, how you doing? Not so good. What's wrong, Phil? He goes, man, I just got discouraged. I go, well, what did you do? He goes, well, me and Carol, when we get discouraged about following the Lord, we, we skip church, and we go down to the convenience store, and we buy beer and cigarettes and lottery tickets. I'm like, oh, well, that's probably not good, you know. Yeah, we just go down there, we buy beer and cigarettes and lottery tickets. That's what we do. Okay, what do you do when you have a setback? You go, how did you know? <laughs> beer, cigarettes, lottery tickets. But usually, you know, the devil has a variety of ways to take us to the one place away from God, right? And, and how many of you have had setbacks? When you're a young Christian, did you ever have any setbacks when you were a young Christian? I imagine there was a young couple and they lived in a beautiful place where the sun usually shines on the seacoast. And they lived in a town called Ephesus. Let's imagine this young couple. And and one day, they they go to the temple of Artemis. They go to other various temples. They're not irreligious altogether. They know there's a God. They know that something created all the beautiful things that are. But their lives are kind of empty. And then one day, they hear about this man who died and who was buried and who rose again. And they're teaching about this man. And people's lives are changing. And they decide that they're going to go hear about it. There's a school that this guy named Paul has rented out. It's called the School of Tyrannus. And through the heat of the day, through the middle of the day, he's there for a few hours every day for a long time. And he's teaching in the School of Tyrannus. So they go and they hear him teaching in the school of Tyrannus, and they actually become believers in Jesus Christ. Imagine this young couple now. Their life is different because now they're Christians. They're going to follow the Lord. Oh, they still have setbacks. You know, they still sometimes go to the convenience store and get beer and cigarettes and lottery tickets or whatever it looks like for them to kind of go back to the old life. They got a little of that still in them. And then one day something really unusual happened. You actually can read about this part. This is the part I didn't make up. It's in Acts chapter 19. In, 
in Ephesians, in, in Acts chapter 19, in, in the story of Ephesus, is found in Acts chapter 19. And in verse 11, there's this really colorful story that happens. There's all kinds of spiritual stuff going on. There's, uh, the, there's the occult, and there's false worship, and then now there's true worship, and there's this, there's this obvious conflict now in, uh, among angels and demons, and it's taking place in the heavenlies over around Ephesus, but it's actually working its way out in the lives of people. In, in verse 11, it says in Acts 19, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. This would have been a really interesting time to be alive. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. Are you tracking with what's going on here? Paul, obviously, the apostle Paul, who himself is a convert, a Jewish convert, to Christianity, who's now an itinerant evangelist, who's in town, God is on this guy's life, and they can see the power of God in his life in incredible ways, and actually people are being delivered from being influenced by demons. And so there are other people that kind of want to get in on that game, and maybe they can turn a profit doing that, and they notice that Paul uses this name, this name of this man, this Jesus. And so they decide they're going to, they see this power in the name of Jesus, they decide they're going to use the name of Jesus. How's that going to go for them? Well, that's interesting. If you know the story, you know it gets really interesting. Verse 14, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. That is, they were using Jesus' name, right? But the evil spirit answered them and said, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them, so they fled out of the house naked and wounded. I want to see a movie of this. It would just, this is like one of the most humorous, scary parts of the Bible. Here are these guys going, we'll just use the name of Jesus. Nah, it was not a good idea. Do not be like taking the name of Jesus lightly. Do not, you know, if you aren't serious, don't, don't get involved and call yourself Christian. Don't start throwing the name Jesus around if you aren't serious, right? Because it's not going to go well for you. These guys flee and they're bleeding and they're naked. Now, what happens when people see this? It says, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to see some of that action, wouldn't you? Yeah. And then it says, and also many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. Many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. A number of these had practiced magic arts and brought their books and burned them. Are you paying attention to this story? Now that's interesting, right? What, what did I just read to you? Are you tracking with how this worked? They, the people that came and divulged their practices and burned their books were people who were unbelievers, right? No, he didn't read it carefully enough. Let's read it again. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging divulging their practices what we have here yeah we got people who are believers they are believers they're called believers and they are they have they got some growing to do 
They got some things they need to stop doing, right? They got some things they need to start doing, right? There's some things they're doing they shouldn't be doing, and there are things that they should be doing they're not doing, am I right? And they are believers. Can anybody here in the house relate to that? Can anybody here relate to that? Are there some things you really ought to stop doing? Yeah. Other things that you're not doing you ought to start doing? Yeah, yeah. You're like, Pastor, that's why I'm here, man. You're going to have to help me with it. Yeah, I'm here to help, you know. And we are in a text of Scripture today that actually gives specific examples about exactly how to do that. So here's this young couple, and when they go to the school of Tyrannus, what do they hear? They hear teaching like what I'm going to show you today that Paul teaches when he writes to Ephesus. But when they saw what happened to the seven sons of Sceva, they probably got, in my little story, in my imagination, that's when they got serious. There were a lot of people who got serious about Jesus then. And notice what happens. A number of those who practiced magic arts brought their books together, burned them in the sight of all. They, can, they counted the value of them, found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. And then there's this little tag at the end in verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now that's what we want, right? We want people who were believers to really get in the game and really fear God. And really see the power of God on their life. Believers who really stop doing stuff that they shouldn't be doing. And start doing stuff that they should be doing. And completely change the way they think about that. Like this young couple we're imagining in the town of Ephesus. We also need to recognize the power of God. And have the power of God to quit doing some of the things that we are doing. Think differently. And start doing some of the things that we ought to be doing. Are you in? Good. Because what I'm going to do right now is something that I always wanted to happen when I was a kid. And that was like, Pastor, I know I'm a bad guy. Tell me how to be a good guy. I know there's stuff in my life that shouldn't be there. Tell me how to get it out, Pastor. I know there's stuff that should be there. Pastor, tell me how to practice that stuff. And that's what we were going to do right now in this message. I'm calling it hot dogs or steak. That's what I'm calling it. And that's going to make sense to you later. And what this is, I believe, is in Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 17 through 32 is a distillation of a teaching that Paul gave more than once. I believe if we were in the school of Tyrannus, that we would have heard Paul say these very things. I believe this was the heart of what Paul often taught people about how to live a brand new life, how to live when you're a brand new Christian. And itinerant evangelists that are good, or itinerant preachers and teachers that are good itinerant preachers, they do a couple of things. They say the same thing to the same people. They repeat themselves because it's not enough to just hear it once. It has to be embedded in our hearts and our souls so we get it. They say the same thing to the same people. But Jesus and Paul and other itinerant preachers would also say the same thing to different people. We know this is true because when you look at Ephesians, if you're ever stuck, if you ever get a knot in the wood, when you're studying Ephesians and you're not really sure you understand a little piece of it, one of the things that you can do is you can look up a parallel passage often in the book of Colossians because there's he, he kind of plays this biblical riff, if you will. He has this favorite thing he teaches on. Jesus did the same thing. And he would teach that wherever he went. And you see these things, not only are you going to see this is a very practical way of stopping doing things that you shouldn't do and starting to do things you should do and thinking the way God wants you to think, a very practical uh, way of doing that is given here in Ephesians. It's kind of like put off and put on. It's given in Colossians. It's given in Galatians. It's given in Romans. You find it all throughout the Bible when you start looking for it. And so this is a very basic thing. Now, I'm not telling you that it's going to be easy for you. 
As a matter of fact, it's not going to be easy for you. It's actually going to be hard for you. It's actually hard work. But I want to point out that it's a simple outline, if you will. There are three things that Paul says in the heart of this text, which I'm going to read here in a minute, from all the way from 17 to 32. The heart of this text, though, is in verses 22 through 24. 22, 23, 24. I'll tell you my little three-point outline, and there are sub-points, but I'll tell you my little three-point outline. You see them right here. The heart of this teaching is in verses 23, 22, 23, and 24. There are three things. The first one is in verse 22. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Hey, the stuff you used to like and want, put it off. Quit it. Stop doing it. That's number one there. Put off the old way of life. That's your former life, he said. Second thing he says to do is in verse 23. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Start to think differently about these things that you should stop doing and these things that you should start doing. It's all about in your mind. We're going to get into that. And the third thing he's going to say is put on the new self. And notice how that's described. This is awesome. Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Are you tracking with this? Just pay attention and think about it for a minute. What's he saying? He's saying it's a simple thing. It's going to be hard work. Holy Spirit's going to inspire it, going to help you and all of that. But you're going to have to practice this. Stop doing things you know are wrong. Think differently about them and replace them with other things. Start doing things that are right. You think, oh, that's just too simple. No, no, no. It's not. It's very profound. And it's going to be described in the rest of the text. So I'm going to read it all to you right now. And then what we're going to do is I'm going to show you in the text where it says those three things and how to practice those things. Verse 17 now in Ephesians chapter 4. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous, and they've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and it's corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness." Now, from verses 25 through 32, he's going to give five examples, and we'll go through one at a time, but now I'll just read it to you. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we're members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear, and don't grieve, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Well, now this is a rich text, and it's very, very practical. Let's go. Number one, look up here. Number one, put off your old life, verse 22. 
Now, all that old life is described in verses 17 through 19, where it says you, you were, before, you know, it says, you know, you're not a Gentile. All the Jewish people are going, yeah, I'm not a Gentile. They'll be like saying, you're not a pig. I'm not a pig. I'm a good guy. Like, before you were saved, but this is like your former life. And we know that because that's what verse uh, 22 says. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. It's not them. It's right. It's us. Before Jesus, what were we like? Okay, here's, here's the deal. Here's the description. We had we, the futility of our minds. It was like it's meaningless, the way we were thinking. Meaningless. And darkened in our understanding. We don't, we don't get what's going on. We're, we're spiritually clueless alienated from the life of God. We don't have the dynamic vitality or life of God in us because our, our thinking is empty, what it's saying. And then it says, we're ignorant. That doesn't mean that we don't know our multiplication tables. That doesn't mean that we're not bright, competent, you know, professional people. It means that we're unaware of the truth of God. We're spiritually blind to it. We don't see it. A person can come to a message like this. As a matter of fact, last weekend I was up preaching, and I was preaching at Barakel. I was preaching my, at Camp Barakel, and I was preaching my heart out. I mean, I'm, I'm lively and getting straight at it, right? I'm making loud noises. I'm, I'm just working hard as I can, and everybody's listening. The kids were on the edge of their seat. They laugh when they were supposed to laugh. They cry when they were supposed to cry, except one guy. He was literally in the back, and he was, his, lead, his head was laid back, his mouth was wide open, and he was totally asleep. The entire time I was talking, didn't matter how loud I talked, didn't matter, you know, what story I told, didn't matter how much I threatened him, that boy was not going to wake up. He was just totally asleep. Now, you're grown-ups, you're adults, so, that, so you're not sleeping, but some of you probably might as well be. You're like totally checked out. You're not listening. Right? You look great. You look like you're listening. But spiritually, this is what we're talking about. Sometimes spiritually, people will sit under the teaching of the word of God, which could totally change their life, and they are totally zoned out. They just, it's just like a four, blah, blah, blah. It's like adults on peanuts. Wah, 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 wah. They can't, they just don't get anything. That's what the Bible says was true about all of us. We didn't have the good sense spiritually to love the things of God. And we didn't have the life of God in us. And you know what it was like when you got saved? And all of a sudden you're going, man, teach me the Bible. I can't get enough of it. I want to read my Bible. I want to know the things of God. I want to sing these songs about the Lord. Because you've you got a spiritual pulse now. You're alive. That's what we were like before. Our old self, if you were. Alienated from the life of God, verse 18, because of the ignorance. And this led to what? This is scary. Hardness of heart. At first we don't know, and then we don't care. And our hearts are hard to spiritual things. Be careful that you, that you never let your heart get hard to spiritual stuff. Keep your heart very, very tender. And how you do that? By keeping your ears open and asking God to enlighten you. And that way you won't become, verse 19, callous. And then give yourselves over to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Verses 17 through 19 are a description of that old life that we want to put off. We want to get it behind us. This is a, the idiom that the scriptures sometimes use is like changing your clothes, wearing something different. It's like you were in prison, and so you, for years and years and years and years and years, you wore an orange jumpsuit with your number on it. And then when you finally got out of prison and you walked free and you breathed free and you could eat where you want to eat and go where you want to go, and you're going to go get a new suit of clothes made, you don't go to the tailor and go, you know what I really like? I like orange. And I want a number right here. You're not going to do that. 
lady was complaining, hearing a church lady complaining to me this week. She's like, she's just giving it to me about what I wear. She's like, a pastor should wear a tie. You know, I get so tired of that, you know. A pastor should wear a tie. I said, okay, Lois, I'll wear a tie this week. <laughs> Doesn't matter if you wear a tie or not. Doesn't matter if you have jeans or slacks. Doesn't matter. How do I know? Because the New Testament, when the New Testament talks about what you wear to church, the, the only thing it says is it says two things. You want to write this down? You can. Number one, don't dress immodestly. So you're distracting people because you're, you're, you're showing your nakedness. You know, that's for the bedroom. It's not for church, right? That's number one. What it says more often than that is don't dress ostentatiously. You say, what's that? Don't Google it. I'll tell you. It means don't show off your finery. The Bible is very clear about that. When it talks about the New Testament church, don't wear the rings. Everybody says, I'm wealthy and you're not. Don't dress in such a way that people who don't have a lot of money feel intimidated. Don't intimidate people about coming to the fellowship because we're all brothers around here. So that's why I like it if somebody wears a tie. Sometimes you'll see me wearing a tie and a suit and sometimes you'll see me wearing jeans and and not a suit. And, And the reason that is is because we honor God by revering his people and we don't want to go beyond what the scriptures say. This is, but here's what I notice. People think a lot about what they wear in church and talk a lot about that. And we don't talk enough about how we clothe ourselves in the thing the Bible says we ought to clothe ourselves in. And that is the virtues, the things that we ought to put on. Putting off our old clothing, which is the works of the flesh and the, the desires of our heart that are bad. This is what we ought to be obsessed with. Putting off the things that shouldn't be a part of our life and putting on the things that should be a part of our life. That's what we should be thinking about more than anything else. And you're allowed to have an opinion about ties or no ties. That's cool. They say that Vincent Van Gogh, the great artist, and you know that if you study his life, you know he died, and he lived a profligate life, and he died far from God, and he uh, had been involved in immorality. But this week I was watching a documentary. It shocked me. I was watching a documentary about the, uh, the life of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great English Victorian-era Baptist pastor. And he was um, phenomenally used of God. And so it was a very popular to go over the river, they say, to the bad side of town to hear Charlie, Charles Spurgeon. Over the river to Charlie, people would go. Thousands and thousands of them would go to hear Charles Spurgeon. And many of them were converted, and their lives were completely changed, and their lives were completely different. But many of them were curious, and were not converted. And Van Gogh was actually among those that went and heard him speak and were so moved by what he said. Van Gogh actually considered being a pastor. He actually took copious notes when he heard Spurgeon preach, but he was never spiritually enlightened, so he never set aside his old life and took on his new life. And Paul is saying to us here, it's not enough to hear, it's not enough to know, unless it changes our life, we didn't really ever get enlightened. The first thing is to put off our old life, put it away. Now the second thing that you'll see there in the next verses in 23, and it's described uh, in verses 20 and 21, is to change the way you think. Change the way you think. Look at it there again. And it's described in verses 22 and uh, actually through uh, 24. uh, I'm sorry, 21. This is not the way you... Notice the words about thinking and learning and teaching and hearing. This is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. This is not the way you learned Christ, assuming you have heard about him and were taught in him. 
Now, this is critical, because if you want to know practically how do you change, first of all, you say, I'm, I'm going to stop doing things that I know I shouldn't do, and then I'm going to re-educate myself about what's good and right and true, and who's going to teach you? Jesus is going to teach you. Jesus is the teacher. Jesus is the school. Jesus is the product of your education. He's everything. That's what it actually says here. Four things. Christ is the subject. You learned what? Christ. What we learned. When, we, when we're following the Lord, we're not just learning stuff about Christ. We're learning to have a fellowship relationship with Christ. So Christ is the subject. We're coming to know a person. Christianity is described as coming to know a person. Pleasing a person, loving a person, having that person love us. But this person is God in the person of Jesus. Christ is the teacher. It says, you heard Christ, meaning he's the one who taught you. And he teaches through the word, through his spirit. And Christ is the context. You have been taught in Christ. So, so that's the school. And Christ is the result. This truth is Christ. And the word there is the word for just the historical Jesus. So if somebody was saying, this is the Jesus that Paul came to town talking about. So when Paul was teaching in the school of Tyrannus, he was not, it wasn't, it wasn't motivational pep talks. It wasn't feel-good speeches. It wasn't inspirational talks. It was preaching about Jesus. It was how you can have a fellowship with Jesus, how you can know what Jesus did and what Jesus is going to do. Okay, so this is the second thing. If we want our old life to become a new life, like this young couple that I'm imagining goes into the school of Tyrannus, all of a sudden they've kind of been lit up because they saw that incident with the sons of Sceva, and they're going to get serious now. One of the first things they're going to have to do is they're going to have to go through their life and go, there are some things in our life that don't belong there, and we're going to put them off. That's part of the old life. We're not going to do those things anymore. And we're going to think differently about them inside. We're going to educate ourselves. We're going to let Jesus teach us from his word and, and skilled teachers and so forth. We're going to learn God's word so that our mind is different. So like we're in this process, you know, imagine young people in our church, young couples, new Christians that, you know, they're just like, they're not, a, they're not far from the old life at all. Now what do they do? They, they stop doing those things. They, they know the Lord, of course. And then they stop, they put aside those old things and they are taught Christ. They learn, that's what you need to do. I'm just telling you, some of you, you're, the, the growth process is going to take some time. It's going to be some work. It's not going to be easy for you. It's labor, and you're going to have to change some things. You're going to have to learn a new way of life. And that's what you have there in verse 24. Notice it says, And put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. And this is described in concrete detail in verses 25 through 32. You see that? So the first chunk of this, put off the old life, was described in the first couple of verses. And the second chunk, learn Christ, is described in 20 and 21. Get it? And then this piece right here, put on the new, is described in verses 25 through 32. And it gives five different helpful examples like good pastors do. Yeah? Now, I want you to imagine that uh, you look at me and you say, man, how could I be built like that guy? He's a physical specimen. Why are you laughing? I just said, imagine. What if I said to you, here's how it works. You know, watch me and do what I do. I am a member of the Planet Fitness. That's how I got this body right here that you're looking at. And you go, really? Yeah, and you're so impressed. Imagine, you're so impressed with that sculpted figure that I have that you say, okay, Pastor, I'll just do what you do. I go, not, they go, you, you go, Pastor, I'll get up whatever time I have to get up in the morning in order to have that figure like you have. I'll do whatever I have to do. I'll make what I go. It's not hard. Don't worry about it, man. It's just Thursday afternoon, three o'clock. That's all. Three to four thirty, hour and a half. That's it. 
Thursday. You're like, what? Yeah, yes, meet me then. Okay, you get off work. We drive over to Planet Fitness. Next door to Planet Fitness is this place where they make the carrot juice and the kale, and that's really good. Everybody loves it. It just tastes so good. She'll get that kale and that carrot little drink thing, and I get one, you get one, because you're going to do, because you want to look like me, you're going to do everything I do. We get the kale and the, and, the, and the carrot drink, and we go over to Planet Fitness. Everybody knows me at Planet Fitness. They're like, Ken, how you doing? I'm like, yeah, what's up? And I'm talking to everybody, you know. I know every machine. How, and sometimes I walk around with my drink, and I explain to people how to use the machine. Like, this is amazing. This will, you can work on your whatever with that, with this right here. Just do that a couple of times, you know. And I'm showing everybody, and they're all just like, but you notice I never actually use the machine. I'm just drinking my kale and carrot juice and talking about the machine, yucking it up with people. And then an hour and a half later, I go, well, there you go. And then we go home. And then you go home to your wife, you go, Pastor's crazy. That dude is crazy. He thinks that if he goes for an hour and a half every week, gets his coffee in the lobby, comes and yucks it up with people, that his life is going to be changed. Well, that's crazy. You can't just go grab the, I mean, the coffee's good. You know, it's good. It's free. It's gourmet coffee. Get your coffee on the floor. Get to know everybody. Come in, have your seat, talk with everybody, yuck it up, hour and a half. That's not going to give you a spiritual six-pack. It ain't going to happen. What's it going to take? It's going to take discipline. We discipline ourselves unto godliness. Now you say, wait a minute. I thought that was the work of God. It is. You'll, you'll never do it without his help. So the spirit, is work, he works in you. When you're born again, the spirit is in you, and he works in you to inspire you to obey and to empower you to obey and to remind you when you didn't obey and to, and to vivify, if you will, your prayers, put life in them. The Spirit will work in you, but God will sanctify your disciplined efforts, your work. You're repeating the same thing over and over again, very much like working out is. That's the way it is. So before we uh, look at these five commands that come up, and, and we quit today, so it won't take more than a couple of hours. Before we do that, there are three things about that that I want you to see. First, the commands are individual and they're relational. So when you look at these five commands in verses 25 through 32... You're going to notice that they're individual commands, but they also are all related like uh, we, we, we operate together in these things. They all involve other people, but they're all true individually. You also know that in each one of them, obviously, you'll see that there's a negative element and there's a positive element. There's stuff you quit, and, you stu- and there's, a, there's a secret in that. There's a power in that. And explain that, and that's where the hot dogs and steak come in. Uh, and then each one is related to a doctrine each one is related to a doctrine. I uh, go to Lowe's every once in a while, not to fix anything, but just to kind of walk around and look manly. And uh, so I, I go to Lowe's and I walk around. And, and the thing I like about Lowe's the, uh, the best is the hot dog thing. At, when you leave, there's this hot dog stand there, and it always smells so good. It's always tempting to me. They're just like, they've got the onions out there, and they got the relish out there, and they got the... You got the mustard out there. I guarantee you, you come to Evangel, you're going to hear about food every Sunday, right? That's what I do. There, and it just smells so good. And it's like the little, it's cheap as dirt. It's like two for a dollar or something. You get an ice cold coat, you get a couple of hot dogs with all the works and a smile for like nothing. You got to walk past that to get out of that place. Do you have any idea how hard that is for me? That is a serious struggle for me. 
I'm just sitting there going, no hot dog, no, don't eat the hot dog. Okay, I'll just take two. I'm like, no. I want you to imagine that I'm at home one day, though, and my wife says to me, hey, honey, um, do you mind running and grabbing a new roller for the toilet paper? I'm like, I can get one of those at Lowe's really fast. She goes, well, hold on here. Yeah, we have time. I'm grilling you a big steak right now, so hurry back. Now I go, and I go scurrying back there, and I grab the toilet paper roll thing, and I go right past the hot dog girl. I'm like, yeah, see you later. I'm out the door. Why? That's called, the Puritans call it the expulsive power of a new affection. That means if you got a steak waiting for you, it ain't hard to resist a hot dog, right? That means if you have something more beautiful, a higher affection, something much greater, something more beautiful, something you will never feel guilty about, something that will be like a great virtue, then you can, if you replay, if you want to stop doing something, the best way is think differently about it and replace it with something better. And that's why what Paul says is so profound here. In every one of these cases, in these five things, he says, stop doing this, start doing this, stop doing this by starting to do this. Now let's look at what they are, and I got a little slide on this that's going to kind of advance through as you see them. You re, verse 25, you replace lying with telling the truth. In every one of these, it's going to be interesting. When you see it, there's going to be another comment in everyone except one. One is implied, and it refers to a, a great doctrine of the church. Notice this one. In verse 25, it says, therefore, you know, since you want the likeness of God in true holiness and so forth. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let every one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. He says, stop lying and start telling the truth. Matter of fact, he says, stop lying by telling the truth. Get it? How do I stop lying? I start telling the truth. When am I not a liar? When I'm starting to tell the truth. And why do I tell the truth? Because we are members of one another. In other words, it's appealing to the doctrine of the church. We're members of one another. We're in the same body. We're in this. And so because of that, we don't lie to each other. It's interesting. Every one of these is rooted in a great doctrine of the church. And there are two reasons for that. It's not like algebra, Zach. When I studied algebra, I thought, why? The whole time they're talking about it, I'm like, why? 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 I still don't know why. Unless you're going to become a teacher and you're going to you know, you're going to torture other people with this. Why would you do that? You know, you make a good living teaching other people, but why? I just don't, I still don't know why. And I'll just sit there and I look at that guy and he'll be telling me X and Y and it's in, you do this first and that. And I'm, I'm lost. I'm told that even if there are no pretty girls in class, I'm totally lost. I don't get this. Why? And a lot of people, they look at doctrine that way. It's like, what's the point of this? Why are you teaching me doctrine? Can I just go to Chipotle now? And can we skip this part? No, you cannot. Because you need doctrine. Why? Because your duty, your performance, your actions are going to be rooted in what you believe about God. And on the other hand, it's not enough just to know stuff. There are six chapters in Ephesians. There are not three chapters in Ephesians. Are you tracking with me? And the first three are there, so the second three will be there. So Christian, it is not enough for you to know the doctrine Paul is saying, here's the doctrine, this is what we expect of you. This is what you ought to know, because this is what you're going to do, right? And that's the idea there, and so you have it here. I was talking to Jacob, he wouldn't mind me telling you this, and last week I was speaking to teens about how to stop sinning. And, I, and Jacob, who's a great Christian kid, comes to my quarters, and he has a few minutes between jobs, so he sits in a chair, 
And I say to him, hey, Jacob, I said, Jacob, I'm getting ready to preach to kids about how to stop sinning. What have you found is the best way of escape, escaping temptation yourself? And he goes, without even hesitating, you know what Jake said to me? He says, accountability. He says, accountability has really been helpful to me. What was Jake telling me? He was telling me that his greatest way of escape from sin is the body of Christ. We are members of one another. His doctrine of the church, that he's accountable to others, and others are accountable to him. It's the doctrine of the church. Somebody says, well, I, I like Jesus, but I don't know what I think about the church. That's a little bit like saying, I like you, Ken, but your wife and kids I don't like. I'm like, well, Ken, I want to hang out with you, but I really don't like your wife and kids. I'm like, we're not going to have a good relationship. You can't say, man, I love you, but I don't like your kids. <laughs> and you're the same way, am I right? My goodness, with you, it even includes your cat and dog. Am I right about that? Love me, love my dog, right? Like, if you're going to make fun. No, Jesus, people that say, I love Jesus, I just don't like the church. Jesus is like, wait a minute, that's my bride you're talking about. It doesn't work like that. You say, I'm a husband, I just don't have a bride. Wait a minute. If you don't have a bride, you're not a husband. Jesus says his church is his bride. And so you can't say that. Somebody says, well, you don't know, Pastor, this whole church thing. I've had a lot of bad church experiences. Uh, oh, really? I said, buy me coffee. I can explain church experiences to you that will put hair back on your head. Like, I bet I have worse church stories than you do. I've been in all my life. I've seen it from the dark and ugly side. But like, think about that with a restaurant. You're like, what if you went out here and you, and you went to a restaurant and the service was bad and, and, the, and, and the food wasn't good and it was overpriced? You just say, that's it. I am never going to eat again in my life. I had a bad food experience and that is it. No more food for me. Would you do that? Of course you wouldn't do that. Why? Because you're going to eat. And that's the way it is with the church. Listen, folks, you're here. So I'm not, you know, I'm preaching to the choir. But, you know, if you're ever tempted, like we all are, to believe that the church is not the way that God has ordained to help us walk with God, don't believe that. It's not true. We are members of one another. And that's why we're honest with each other and we don't lie. Let me move a little quicker. Verse 26. We replace, so we replace lying with telling the truth. We replace unrighteous anger with what we would call righteous indignation, there are things that Christians should be upset about, should be angry about. But the Bible says, be angry and don't sin. And then you know this, it says, don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. In other words, that's something you want to deal with quickly. That anger that wells up in you is something you want to deal with quickly. Don't go to bed. Somebody says, you go to bed angry, you're going to sleep with the devil. So, so don't do that. Why does it say that? Because you notice what it says there. It says, don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. Because verse 27 says, because in that way, you give an opportunity to the devil. Go to bed angry, you sleep with the devil. Verse 27, you see that? And then it says, replace stealing with working and giving. And by the way, the doctrine behind that righteous anger, unrighteous anger, is what? It's the doctrine of Satan and demons. It's, he appeals to that doctrine because he talks about the devil. And then you have one implied in verses 27 and 28. We replace stealing with working and giving. What does working make you think of? That takes us all the way back to the garden when we were originally created. He said, here's what you want to do. You want to work and you want to share. And he says, if you want to, this is what our new life should be is we work and we, we share, we give instead of taking and being dishonest. In Ephesus, it was common for people to be dishonest. And then in verse 29, we replace corrupt talk with edifying talk. Replace corrupting talk or, or rotten talk with talk that builds up. Augustine, you know, the great theologian, 
He said he had a sign over his table that said, whoever speaks evil of an absent person is not welcome at my table. I was going to leave that one out of the message because it was so personally convicting. But I thought maybe that's a good reason to leave it in there. Maybe we should hang that over our table today. Whoever speaks evil against a person who is absent is not welcome at my table. The way the Apostle Paul said it is he said this, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. And then you might say, well, how do I know if it's corrupting? Well, you have this. It says, but only that which is good for building up and fitting for the occasion that gives grace to the hearer, because if you don't do that, you're grieving the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So he appeals to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit, to say, because the Holy Spirit lives in you and you're sealed and he's got to hang out with you until the day of redemption, you should not talk bad about other people. And how do you know if it's bad? Well, was it building them up or was it corrupting? Was it, was it rotting them or was it building them up? If it ministers grace, if it's a, is your speech a gift, is it gifting in any way? That's what we should. So God help us, right? God help us all. If I say to you, you know, some of you don't struggle with drunkenness, right? Some of you don't struggle with, the, with smoking marijuana or, or, or committing adultery, thank the Lord. But you, you struggle with this because it's one of those acceptable Baptist sins, you know, talking bad about other people when they're not there, you know, slandering other people or gossip. You know, it's in the word there. It's often, and that's a tough one. It's hard, you know, that's like we got to talk. And then, and then when does it become we shouldn't have said that? I think we all have to ask ourselves the hard question on this one. Don't you agree? I mean, I think we do. If we want to put off the old life, it's like before we knew the Lord, but we didn't love the Lord, and we didn't love the things of the Lord, we didn't care who we trashed. But now we have the Holy Spirit living in us. We want to be very careful that whatever we say actually is graceful speech that gifts people and builds them up. Let's do that this week. Don't talk if it's not contributing to building somebody up. God help us all, right, on that one. If I didn't get you on any of the other ones, we got ourselves we got shot right between the eyes on that one, didn't we? It gives grace. And if we don't do that, who's sad? Look, at, look what it says, and then I'll ask you the question again. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. If we don't do that, who's sad? The Holy Spirit of God is grieved. I'd like to imagine you sit at the dinner table and you talk about the person that's not there and you look over at God and he's going... And then you have replace bitterness and rage with kindness and forgiveness. Replace bitterness and rage with kindness and forgiveness. Notice that there's a progression here. First there's bitterness in verse 30 and 32. Then wrath or, or indignant outbursts. And then burning, seething inner anger. And then clamor. You start shouting to them. They're present. And then slander. You start talking about them behind their back. And then malice, which is a settled hatred against other people. This is the part that we put off. That's the orange jumpsuit. Stop it. <laughs> you ever watch Newhart? Some of us that are older remember Newhart. He was a psychiatrist on TV. Lady come to him one day and she said, I have this inordinate fear that I'll be buried in a box someday. He said, I'm going to tell you two words. This is the way Lois would do counseling if she was a counselor. Stop it! Then he goes, that'll be $5. She goes, but my mother, he goes, we're not going there. It's $5. Stop it. That's all he does. Six minutes, he just says, stop it. Well, thank the Lord. Paul gives us a little more help than that. He says, stop it. 
Start letting Jesus teach you how to think about that. And here's something that you can replace it with. So if you're struggling with lying, start telling the truth on the power of the Holy Spirit this week. If you're struggling with saying things that are corrupting, start saying things that build people up. Practice saying things that build people up. The Holy Spirit will do his part to inspire you and to empower you, but you have to do more than suck on the carrot juice and chit-chat with people for an hour and a half. You have to discipline yourself unto godliness every day, and then maybe someday... Maybe someday somebody will come and your life will look like this. Be kind to one another and tenderhearted and forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, had forgiven you. So imagine that couple in Ephesus. And now the years have gone by, five and 10 and 15 and 20 and 25 years. Now they have wrinkles in their face and they're not young anymore. But they've walked long with God. They've drunk deeply of the things of God. And there's a grace and a beauty and a fragrance and a magnetism about this old couple. And then one night outside their home, there within sight of the ocean, a young couple comes to meet with them. And as the sun goes down, and they listen to the bird songs, and they feel the gentle breeze come off the ocean, and the young couple says to the old couple, how did you have a family like this? How did you have a marriage like this. You have such a gracious way with each other. Your kids, they know the Lord and they love the Lord. I would so like to be like you. How did that happen? And then they would say, well, now that's, that's a long story. 